for me, it really comes down to, is your business model born on the age of the internet? If I was going to remix the bank, the one thing that I would remove is the banker. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Banking Remix, the new podcast from Veritran. I'm your host, Katie Janos-Small, the founder and editor of Upana. On this podcast, we talk to leaders in digital finance about how traditional banking is being remixed, how it's being spun together with new technologies, concepts, and data with the aim of creating better customer experiences and more intuitive, integrated services. I am over the moon to welcome today's guest, the legendary Chris Skinner. Chris is one of the world's leading commentators on banking and technology. He's an author, consultant, and all-round thought leader when it comes to the future of finance. He writes daily at thefinancer.com, and he is the author of 14 books, including Digital Bank, Digital Human, and Doing Digital. And he's just uh, told me that he's got some new books coming out, which he'll be talking to us about um, in this conversation as well. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you here to discuss what makes banking innovation succeed. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Katie. And um, I'm a digital guy, so uh, I think I kind of give that away by my books. <laughs> Tell us, you've, you've been involved in a lot of interesting initiatives over your career. So tell me about one of the projects that you've been most proud to work on. I guess um, if I look back, and I don't like looking back, I spend all my life looking forward, but um, the way in which I've seen digital transformation take over the industry um, is something that was nascent and bubbling when I began back in the 1990s. Um, in fact, I've been around before that, I'm showing my age, but that's when you know, the technology stranglehold really started to uh, become noticeable and how to break free of that. Um, so I've had a number of breakthrough projects I was involved in. And I guess the most um, gratifying one would be the fact that I was talking about banking as a service in the 2000s, um, over 10 years ago. Uh, I would claim to be the first one talking about banking as a service because I was talking about it before everyone else. And now, um, working with 11FS and a number of other companies uh, like Meniger, um, we're delivering banking as a service. And that's what I'm most proud of, that um, something that was just a uh, concept in my back of head in the 2000s is now mainstream and everywhere in the 2020s. Uh, how's it changed from the, from the concept that you had um, initially to how it's playing out in, in reality today? Um, it's not far off what I originally said, although it's uh, got nuances. And the main nuance is that when I originally talked about banking as a service in the 2000s, I had this idea that using open banking and APIs um, and a cloud, customers could create their own bank and use plug-and-play software from many providers to develop what they wanted as the service that was the best service for them. And I guess the biggest difference is that 15 years later, why would a customer want to go to the hassle of doing that? You know, a bank should do that for them or a neobank or a challenger bank or someone else should do that for them. So today I would say the major difference is that um, if I was looking at banking as a service and how to bring together the best customer experience, I would want my provider of financial services to do that for me. 
And if they don't do it well enough, I'll go and find a different provider. So let's talk about you know the the specific changes then in the last in the last twelve months or maybe since the the onset of the pandemic. What what's something that surprised you about uh, how things have changed in that period? Um, I think the major surprise is how unready the incumbent financial industry was for the lockdown. Um, they really were not geared up at all for an operation that was distributed with um, people working from home to deliver services to customers who were distributed and wanting service from home. Um, I've had some really disappointing experiences with traditional financial firms on the telephone and online over the last year because they just were not ready for what was happening. A lot of their operation was tested to be mission critical, fault tolerant, high performance, but using offshore services and they didn't have any backup plan or you know critical disaster recovery plan for when offshore services shut. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but you'll probably know who I'm thinking about. You know, those who are using offshore service centres uh, are still, even today, 15 months later, 18 months later, struggling to keep services um, available to clients. And I think what we have found not surprising, but actually enjoyable about the lockdown is if you were ready then you excelled. You could really demonstrate how good you are digitally online. And um, there are some companies, particularly some of the challenger banks and neobanks, have done amazing things in the last year and a half, which the incumbent banks could not even contemplate or think of. And I, I now when I talk to people, I, I have this concept of if your customers were on Mars and you were on Earth, how would you deal with them? And what would the business model be? How would you develop a structure of a company for customers on Mars and you on on Earth? And um, the reason why I use that analogy is that that's actually what happened in the last year. You, know, you might as well have had your customers on Mars because they were remote and living at home and working from home and wanting service from home. And your people were on Earth, but they might as well have been on Mars or Venus or Mercury or Pluto or wherever. Uranus. Oh, sorry, Uranus. Um, they could have been wherever. So how do you deal with a multi-planetary organization of structure that's remote is what you have to actually build for digital transformation right now. I think that's a super interesting analogy because we think of this global interconnected world where everything, where the internet is always on and things work seamlessly from from that point of view. And we've seen that, that, that sometimes they, they, they just simply don't, right? Um, and it's interesting the way you talk about how the, there's been perhaps winners and losers over over the last um, well since the onset of the pandemic. How do you see that playing out commercially? Do you do you see um, um, kind of customers responding to these? Um, how do you see? Yeah, have how have you seen customers responding to those um, those dynamics? Well, it's massive. I mean, I call it the K-curve economy. And um, yes, we've seen a downturn in the last decade, in the last 12 months, 15 months, um, for obvious reasons. But the K-curve economy is the upside of the K are those who are ready to be truly digital. The downside of the K are those who are wholly dependent on being physical. And 
just making it sort of easy, you know, Amazon, Spotify, Netflix, Alibaba, Tencent, Badoo, we're all in the upside of the K curve. Um, the airline industry, the hospitality industry, the retail industry, um, anyone who relied on face-to-face -face physical interaction were on the downside of the K curve. Uh, I've only survived this crisis because I had online retail to deliver something every day. And I made a joke the other day that um, my delivery guy who delivers all my stuff from online servicing um, was worried about me because um, I didn't order something yesterday. So he knocked on the door and said, are you okay? <laughs> so it literally is that extreme. But, you know, All the customers, everybody has moved to uh, retail therapy online. And um, if you weren't ready for that, then you're suffering. If you were ready for that, you're thriving and surviving and blooming. And um, it's... It's not a big shock to look at the most valuable companies in the world today are truly digital companies, and the ones that have lost the most value in the last year are those that are truly physical. What do you see as being the biggest hurdle for traditional banks looking forward now? What's the biggest hurdle for them as digital finance evolves? Well, again, I'm very boring about this because I've written so much about it, but um, it's, it's actually not about technology. Um, it's about leadership and the... The mindset of most traditional institutions is to evolve their existing business to the network world, whereas actually what they should be doing is reinventing their business to embrace the network world. And um, I sort of typify it by what we saw happening in March 2020. So between March 2020 and June 2020, there were many, many headlines about traditional old banks signing cloud contracts for cloud computing services. And what they were actually signing up for is the fact that they suddenly found their head office closed and, their, and people were at home and their customers were at home and they had to service them at home. So they had to be cloud-based. And what they did is they took their existing traditional business model of finance and moved it to the cloud. And that, to me, is just shooting yourself in the head. Because what you should have done, and this is what you should be doing now if you haven't done it already, is rethinking the business model of the bank to be native to the cloud, born on the cloud, created on the cloud, and always on the cloud. And that's what is the difference between the banks that get digital and the banks that don't. The banks that get digital are becoming digital native and the banks that don't get it are becoming digital immigrants. And we know from generational ageist views that a digital immigrant is someone who wasn't born in the age of the internet and those who are digital natives are those who are born on the age of the, of the internet. But for me, it really comes down to, is your business model born on the age of the internet? You know, are you built to be born on the net? And if you're not, then you are going to die because like, you really can't deal with customers who live on the network if you are trying to evolve the network. And the litmus test for this amongst my clients is when I meet them and they introduce me to a chief digital officer, I know they don't get it. If I meet them and they talk about omnichannel, I know they don't get it. If I meet them and they talk about the digital project that they've invested in and that they're 
adding this digital channel to their infrastructure. I know they don't get it because, like, you don't add this to infrastructure and you don't have a guy who looks after it or a lady or whoever, and you don't deal with it as an add-on. It's the core of the company. It's the foundation of the company. You have to have the data structure at the center of the company for omni-access that allows anybody anywhere, whether they're whatever stakeholder they are, um, customer, employee, shareholder, to access what they need from the company's data. Um, it's not channels. And you know, channel to me, as anyone who knows me from through my blog or presentations, is the same as saying, I'm going to tape something. We don't tape anything anymore. What's tape? You know, yeah, tape I'm going to videotape something. I'm going to you know, create a cassette of this. Where the hell are you coming from? You're so old-fashioned. Go and die. But Hatch, I was trying to explain that very same concept to my five-year-old the other day, and it it it, it does get quite uh, quite convoluted quite quickly, doesn't it? Um, what are some of the litmus tests then that you see as signs of success, right? If those those few indicators suggest to you that someone doesn't get it, what are some of the what are some of the signs from your side that um, that a bank is on the right track when it comes to digital transformation? Well, I normally look at the executive leadership team, not the board of directors necessarily, although I'd look at them as well, but the executive leadership team, um, you know, who, who's, who's on the team and what are their backgrounds? Do they have a background that clearly demonstrates um, professional experience in technology, telecommunications, networking, um, and the world of the, of the internet and um, 5G, 4G, and everything that we're going through right now? Um, and most financial firms obviously have people who are really good at compliance and risk regulations and um, accounting and numbers and um, credit exposures, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the balance has to be between the two because you can't be a digital bank if you only have people who are bankers leading the bank. So you have to have people who are really good um, digital people to balance the both the boardroom but particularly the executive leadership room i was quite surprised when i did the book digital bank um in that it was quite ahead of the market and then i sat down and thought so many people think that i'm a bank basher and i'm not i'm actually quite a big supporter of banks i i don't believe they're going to disappear i believe they'll be around for you know centuries to come um, they won't be dis disintermediated, disrupted, destroyed by technology. They will evolve and adapt, but they have to evolve and adapt in the right way. And so in my last book, Doing Digital, I actually wrote down uh, a list of the banks I thought that were trying really hard to do this well, one of which was BBVA. And when I met BBVA, and this to me is the litmus test that distinguished them from everyone else, including some of the other banks in the book, in fact, is over half of their executive leadership team, the people doing the job, not the people you know, looking at the company from the board level, the people actually running the company, over half of the people running the company were digital people. You know, the chairman, the chief executive had a background in telecommunications and technology. But more than that, they had a head of engineering, a head of data, a head of customer experience on the executive leadership team alongside a CIO, and a COO and a CFO who also had experience in tele technology and telecommunications. Now their balance is at, at that time, to be honest, is actually maybe more skewed towards digital than most, but that's why they were part of the companies that I selected for the book. Um, most banks I meet 
Great financial people, no digital people. They're going to fail. When you do go in to talk to one of those... Ba- uh, sorry, I should say, before you ask me, Katie, when, when I say they're going to fail, it doesn't mean they're going to be disrupted or disintermediated or destroyed. They'll be acquired by a smart bank that's smart with data because they're a dumb bank that's dumb with data. So when you go into a bank, um, let's say a dumb bank, as you just as you just call it, when you go into a bank that's maybe not, not as far advanced on its on its digital journey, how do you have those conversations with the leadership and say, hey, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're from the era of, of VCRs and tape and you need to get into the era of TikTok. Um, how do you, are they hard conversations to be having with, you know, bank CEOs and, and bank leadership? How do, you, how do you break the news to them? Well, they are hard conversations, but if they invite me in, I don't wrap it up in fluff. I basically say, this is the way it is, guys. I, I have a slide that I've dropped, but maybe I'll bring it back. Um, which is when I'm walking to most bank boardrooms, I'm met by this group of people and the slide is a bunch of grey haired old white guys who are fat and there's no ladies and there's no one of diversity. Um, Obviously that's not the case anymore. Um, (laughs) It gets me into difficult waters because I'm not an average person and that's the reason why people read what I write and like what I say sometimes um and i describe myself as a professional troublemaker in that i'm trying to wind things up and get the conversation started so when i describe most boardrooms as being a group of big fat white guys who have no diversity and no ethnicity and um you know very little that shows their structure on the board of inclusion that to me is one of the biggest issues right now because technology is very much driven by a younger generation. But it's more than that. Digital leads to digital transparency. So you can see how the impact of the company is changing the metrics and nature of the planet and society. You can see how environmentally friendly the company is. Uh, And although they may have sustainability and corporate governance on their PR agenda, are they delivering against the words with actions or is it just a PR agenda? Uh, and this to me is part of what's taking place right now in my litmus test of the boardroom which and the executive leadership team, which is not just looking at have you got digital in balance with financial, but do you also have environmental community and society in balance with your returns to shareholders? A uh, big theme right now, and I know you, you want to talk about my next project, but I'm going to raise it before you, you do, is um, you, what are you doing for sustainability and the environment and the climate emergency as a financial firm? And can you demonstrate that you're doing it and not just talk about it? Because there's a lot of, a lot of talk, there's little action. Um, and due to activist investors and customers, there's now a lot of demand for action and not just talk. It's um, the game is changing very quickly, and I'm not sure people realise that. How does that uh, tell us about how you see that playing into, say, the transformation of a bank, the the climate emergency, the broader economic and social goals? How does how does that play into, or how does that work with um, bank transformation? So we are on the cusp of massive change, not just digital change but societal and governmental change 
the internet, the network doesn't recognize governments and nations and borders. And equally, it doesn't recognize institutions and corporations from the industrial era, which is the reason why there are so many new companies creating new models of connectivity between governments and citizens that circumvent and reinvent what we had in the last century. In particular, the digital world provides digital transparency where we can all see the activities and the actions of companies in reality versus in their pamphlets and their PR. And an example I've just held up in the last week, in fact, on my blog is HSBC, who for a long time have talked about sustainability and corporate governance, but actually haven't been doing it. They've just talked about it. And the result is Extinction Rebellion and their investors have retaliated at the last board meeting, AGM, and said, you need to commit to getting out of fossil fuel firms funding. And so they have. They've made the commitment by 2040. I don't think that's quick enough, to be honest, but at least they've made the commitment to do it. And they, but they've been forced to make that commitment by their customers and by activists. And so the project I'm working on right now as my next book is Digital for Good. And I'm actually talking to Extinction Rebellion, Money Rebellion, um, and many people involved in the activist uh, community to understand where they're coming from. And actually, they're not loonies, they're not idiots. I mean, a lot of these people are actually very nice people um, who I, I, I personally respect them a lot. And I'm trying to move that agenda forward and say, over the next decade, the financial community, due to digital transparency, have to demonstrate that they are committed to their words with action and not just producing glossy PR. When we talk about environmental, sustainable and corporate governance activities, an amazing statistic um, came out the other day from an analysis by the New York um, University, NYU, which is that of the Fortune 100 companies, they looked at the background of 1,188 executives on the boards of those Fortune 100 companies and found that 21% had some experience of sustainability. Woohoo! Good. So four out of five don't know anything about sustainability. But 6% had ever had an experience of environmental or governance issues. So 94% have no experience. And take that step further, um, when I've analysed the boards of banks and their experience of digital, typically 90% or more have no experience in telecoms or technology. So these two big spinning plates of the ESG agenda, environmental sustainability and governance, along with digital, are actually about to break the banks unless they step up to the mark because they don't have the experience at the leadership or the executive boardroom or the board level and they they got to get there quick so that's the the thesis of your next book digital for good that 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 the digital revolution brings this extreme transparency to to operations and 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 financial institutions well all institutions need to um, put their money where their mouth is, as it were, really kind of um, 
commit to these to these principles and more than just uh, more than just PR statements. Yeah, I mean, there's three or four levels to it. Um, at the headline level, is you've got to have a purpose and be a purpose-driven, purpose-led business. And people say, well, we have a purpose. We, we are here to help people access financial services. Um, and you go, well, actually, you've got to demonstrate that it's something that's more than that. It's actually that you stand for something, because if you don't stand for anything, you fall down. So what do you stand for? And so oh, we've got these cultural values, you know, respect, integrity, service, excellence, whatever. And you go, no, 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 I, I don't want you to give me the trite corporate governance speak. I want to hear it from your heart in the DNA of the company, that, not just from you, but the whole company, that they understand what that means and they believe in it and they commit to it because that differentiates you. That's what will attract customers and employees of the future. So I want you to give me a purpose that you stand for something that you you have a value set that you demonstrably measure and are committed to to deliver and that that you do that every year transparently and openly digitally for all your clients and stakeholders and in fact the biggest difference here is we're talking about stakeholder capitalism and that to me is what's the pivotal shift in 2020s which is we move away from Milton Friedman's stakeholder economics where it's just about the shareholder to the 21st century's stakeholder economics where society community employees customers community the planet are all just as important as the investors and i think that's driven not just by me saying it but i, I i'm seeing it i'm seeing it driven by generations i'm seeing it driven by the new generation of customers and people coming in, into companies and um, working in those companies and i'm seeing it actually being embraced by some more visionary leaders who might be um, a little bit old for um, this world but they would believe we have to change and um, i'm one of those people so this has been a super interesting conversation, and we've talked a lot about how um, you know how banking uh, needs to change. The theme of this podcast is banking remix, right? The adding or subtracting things from from t traditional institutions um, to prepare them for the future. So the the question related to that theme is: if you were to identify a single element, a single thing that you would add to or subtract from a bank to prepare it for the future. Could you pin it down to, to one thing? What would it be and, and why would you choose that? If I was going to remix the bank, the one thing that I would remove is the banker. And that sounds stupid, but um, it is something that resonates with me very strongly because you're never going to change the organisation if you have someone who wants to keep the organisation the same. And if you bring in someone from another industry... Um, particularly a more visionary industry who looks at the organization and asks why, then you change the bank. Um, when ING Direct launched in America, and there's a great book about this from Arkani Suno, I think his name was, who is the guy who launched the bank. Um, but one of the things he said is we purposefully avoided hiring bankers. We hired musicians and entertainers and actors and performers to work for the bank. And they would then ask us the tough questions. Why do you do it this way? I mean, this is ridiculous. And what's amazing about that process is when I was growing up, 
if I was hired by a company and walked into a company and started to challenge the company as a young graduate, I'd be told to get lost. But actually, I'd go out there and, and hire young graduates and young people and actors and performers and entertainers and say, I don't want you to get lost. I want you to tell me how I can get lost in the world that you live in. So get rid of the banking mentality and find someone who can really think out of the box. That's um, that's that's a radical proposition. Um, at what point do you say that financial services? Well, does that mean banks should be leaving behind the core of what they're doing? No, not at all. It's basically saying you need to challenge yourselves. And the issue we have right now is we don't challenge ourselves. We prefer ceteris paribus. I'm showing you my age here because I'm using Latin. Um, more of the same. Keep the status quo. Um, rather than challenging ourselves to do something different. And, um, you know, end of day, what we really need to do is to think differently, behave differently, connect better with the digital age. I mean, most of the companies that are um, unicorns in the fintech space have been created by teenagers or people in their 20s. You know, you take Ritalat Buterin with Ethereum or Patrick and John um, Collison with um, Stripe. You know, these guys, I, I could go on and on with the list, but they're guys who just didn't understand the status quo, and so they've created a new one. And that's what you need in the leadership of the financial firms to embrace the way in which we're moving forward and say, you know what, we need people who can challenge our thinking. And the, the worst thing is, most traditional firms, if you challenge their thinking, you're told to get lost. I'd rather say, tell me more. Looking, looking a little further into the future now, um, how do you see, how do you see the next generation? How do you see our kids managing their money when they become adults? What's that going to look like? That's a huge question. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question to be honest, Katie, because um, the next generation, and I think. Um, you, you know that I have two small boys, twins, who are five. Um, I know that by the time they've grown up, we're going to be multiplanetary. Uh, you know, we'll be colonizing Mars. We're going to be having lunar space stations that they can come visit for holidays. And it sounds radical and stupid, but um, I liken it to when I grew up, um, the idea of even going into space was radical and stupid. Uh, when my parents were growing up, the idea of flying in a plane to Australia was stupid. Um, and so each generation sees this progress that drives innovation. And the older generation is quite fearful of it because it's radical. The younger generation it totally embrace it. It's wonderful because it um, means that they won't live like their mum and dad or grandparents did. Um, so... Going back to what I said, oh, you know, if you design a bank that has customers on Mars and employees on Earth, what does that bank look like? Actually, that's a reality that will be within the lifetime of my children and might actually be sooner than we expect. Um, how they bank, therefore, is going to be very much one where I hope they're more educated about money than I was. Um, education about money in schooling and the um, schooling system was very poor. Um, my main education about money came from my mum and dad. I don't know where yours came from, but you know, um, I would like to see finance as a 
course that children are given as part of their core curriculum from the age of 11, maybe earlier, um, so they understand how money works. Because when we look at the way of the world today and um, historically, most kids come out of school and they have no idea how money works. And they and it, they realize how important it is to the lives and then they become frightened of it and they don't talk about it. Um, we should all be open and openly talking about money and confident. And the very end result, if we go to a century or more from now, is I hope what we have from Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek series, which is money doesn't exist. It's all about improving humanity and our competencies and skills and thinking, and money does is just irrelevant. Amazing. So you um you've got you've got two kids of your own, but you you also uh, speaking to the next generation on a on a bigger level, right? With your um, with your book that's coming out soon, Captain Cake and the Candy Kit. Tell tell me a bit more about that. Is that about digital <laughs> banking for five year olds? Mm. Is it is it the Gruffalo turning into a digital transformation expert? No, no, no. Uh, but you know, the lockdown pandemic shows that we all diversify into different areas. And I just got fed up with reading my kids the same stories every night, and they got fed up with me reading the same stories every night. And so we ended up saying, "Daddy, tell me a different story." And I said, "I'll tell you a story." about um space and um the universe and my youngest said to me oh you mean captain cake so he, so it's actually my, my freddie who made up the story and eddie said i want to hear this story my kids are freddie and eddie i tried to convince my wife to call them reggie and ronnie for some reason she realized that i was out of order um, <laughs> so I started making up stories about um, Captain Kate with Lieutenant Chocolate, Sergeant Jelly and Private Potato um, exploring the universe and the sweet candy spaceship and then it became um, they had to rescue the veggie crew which was led by um, Captain Cabbage and Lieutenant Broccoli and then they had to fight the Rotten Tomatoes led by Captain Ugly and Lieutenant um, Bruise uh, along with privates, yuck. Um, it's just a silly story. And and it's funny because the publishers have taken it on board and they said to me, you know what you're doing is um, developing life skills for children because it's aimed at like four, five, six-year-olds, which educates them in how to play as a team and everyone has different um, strengths and weaknesses. And I said, I didn't realize I was doing that, but now you told me I'm doing that. That's great. That's super cool. And when's that, when's that book out? It's actually been out for a while, but um, it's not in Europe and America. It's coming out in Europe and America in July. So if you go on Amazon and look at Captain Cake uh, and the Candy Crew, you can find it there. It's, it's, I won't say it's better than FinTech because I'm doing the new book about digital for good, but um, it's, a, it's a great escape. <laughs> I bet. It's uh, certainly some diversification for you. And digital for good, when, uh, when can we expect that? That's going to be spring next year, 2022. And so if you want to find out what um, the most recent thinking is, it's uh, Doing Digital, which came out in spring 2020. Um, and equally, I'm finally doing some physical events. So I'm back in London for FinTech Week London in July. I'm going to be in San Diego for a meeting in August, um, organized by a financial firm on the West Coast. And uh, hopefully I'll be flying around the world again soon, but doing carbon offsets and good for society and good for the planet. Must feel good to be getting back into the travel. Tell me about it. Just been on holiday to Spain and uh, 
well, it's amazing how if you go to Spain from Poland, which is where I'm based, um, it's very easy. If I went to Spain from England, it would be very difficult. We need to have more standards mm. and agreements. Um, well, look, Chris, thanks so much for your time. This has been a, a super interesting conversation. Uh, we're looking out for your book, and I wish you all the best with the, with the in-person events as we return to some sort of uh, new normal. Thank you, ma'am. And thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Good luck with everything at the Banking Remix. Thank you. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Bye now. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Banking Remix by Veritran. Be sure to subscribe to the series in Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you'll be the first to hear the next interview. Until then, keep up with the latest in digital finance on Vnext, that's Veritran's blog, where the team discusses news and trends in banking transformation. Don't miss it, head over to veritran.com blog. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Banking Remix Insights.